Once Upon a Time, Season 5, Episode 18 is over, but we are just getting started here on Once Upon a Recap. Hello, all you magical people out there. My name is Mike Bloom, one of the co-hosts of Once Upon a Recap, and I am joined by a guy who just might have liquidated himself into a puddle, but he has coagulated once more and he's ready to talk about this episode. It's Kurt Clark. Kurt, welcome back to the world of solids. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a gas. Um, I've got my <laughs> sil- ah, yeah, got my silver slippers on and I'm ready to take this podcast home. So let's do this. And they look fetching on you, by the way. Really great. I, I wish this was a video podcast for everyone to see your silver slippers. Yeah, click on my heels. <laughs> so this was an interesting episode and right up top i want to get your thoughts about it because this was an episode that i personally feel like sort of threw plot development away a little bit we have a few things that basically happened by the end of this episode namely that mm-hmm. snow white's gone bell sort of out of the picture um and so those things have basically gotten taken care of by the end of the episode but the brunt of the episode is focused a lot more on emotional beats and character development specifically from two characters that we've seen each maybe twice in the past two years. <laughs> and so when we talked about these these seasons in the past, Kurt, I know that you have probably been less of a fan than I have in terms of these more heart-rendering emotional moments and storylines as, as separated from the plot elements themselves. I'm thinking of uh, Neil's death as a big example in terms of our disparate opinions. Wait, baby Neil died? Uh, yeah, <laughs> they, they, she came, the mom came back just in time uh, for her son to die. Oh, no, that uh, is too, that's too dark even for once upon a time. <laughs> Hashtag, oh, that Neil. Okay, got it. Uh, Sorry, so, I keep getting a mix of. <laughs> so I'm, I would love to know from you because I actually did enjoy, again, for all the plot development that was kind of thrown out the window this episode, I did enjoy the emotional and character development that happened with Ruby, with Dorothy, with a little bit of Snow White this episode. What What are your thoughts right off the top of this podcast? Grr, all the feels. Um, no, you know what? I actually, I, I actually didn't mind it. Um, the, I, I think, I think where like it's some, some of the, I think some frustration um, may be at. Uh, I, I think I prefer the emotional development and the character development uh, in earlier episodes in a season when it feels like we, you know, they, they used to, we start to pick up the pace and we start to get action. And then it feels a little bit like we slam on the brakes um, towards the end of a season. I think that's where I feel a little bit more reactive about it. I didn't feel that this necessarily pumped the brakes uh, a whole lot. I think we got a lot of uh, like, if you look at, where things are plot wise and action wise at the beginning and the end. Uh, I think, you know, I think there was some advancement. Um, and, and, and plus the fact that I have said in the past, I am a big fan of Oz as a setting. I think you can almost have these two diametrically opposed areas of Neverland at one end and Oz at the other. And, you know, any setting I could play somewhere along that continuum. So I was happy to see Oz. Um, and, 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 and I'll talk about Munchkins later, um, but it, it's I don't I don't know. It's I liked what they were trying to do with uh, the relationship between Ruby Red. I keep going back and forth in my notes and like whether I'm calling her Ruby or whether I'm calling her Red and whether <laughs> whether I'm trying to save time by typing one extra letter. I, I liked the what they're trying to do with the relationship between Red and Dorothy, um, but it it seemed artificial somehow i i can't really put my finger on it you mean it seems like it was written in a book by a 13 year old boy almost exactly it, it it i'm i was wondering who was in the writer's room to create this because it just didn't 
ring authentic to me. Um, I applaud, like, I think, you know, you know, looking back and we had talked about this before, I think the relationship between Mulan and Aurora, I thought was wonderfully handled. Yeah. And, and I think you agreed with that. Um, and, I, and I thought that that felt much more authentic and rang true. But I think it was also something that was developed uh, over a little bit more time. And and here it just maybe seemed rushed. And it's almost like that breakneck pace that they typically take with action. They t- tried to take that with like emotional development and character development. Um, and so I, I didn't not like it. It was just more that it just didn't really ring true to me. Everything that, that went down in uh, the, the Oz scenario. Um, I, there were, uh, there was like actually one thing that I had a huge issue with, not huge, pretty big issue with in this. And we'll, and we'll talk about it when we get to it. It did actually had nothing to do with uh, the, uh, the Dorothy and red storyline, but I'll, I'll, I'll hit you with that when we get to it. What do you think the chances are that the reason why you, why you might not have enjoyed this storyline so much is because, as I mentioned before, these characters are either new in the case of Dorothy or very, very minor as of late, as is the case with Ruby. You know, I think the thing that we liked about Mulan and Aurora was that we'd seen them recurring throughout season two. So when, or at least the first half of season two. So when it was revealed, we knew, okay, these are characters that we have been tracking the entire time. We sort of understand their motivations. Here, you know, Ruby was seen and, and, you know, the, the Bear King episode of the beginning yeah. of this season. But otherwise, she's been pretty much gone from the show for a year and a half, pretty much. So to have her come back and then be involved in this storyline, I don't want to call it filler because it's not filler. Like I would say the bear King might be filler though. Apparently the bear King is becoming a much more uh, important episode between the ale of Dunbrock and now Mulan and Aurora coming back into the picture for one episode. But it did feel like, I know you said it didn't feel like it was pumping the brakes for you. It felt a lot like pumping the brakes for me in that you can, you kind of have to check in at the end of every episode from now on, in my opinion, to be like, okay, how much closer are they to defeating Hades? And yet again, the answer is they're really not that much closer, except for David trading his life, his soul being damned for Mary Margaret. And that's pretty much it. And I know that's kind of the, the place of stasis that we've been in. But now I'll be honest, I'm starting to kind of feel a little restless. And again, I really enjoyed what they did with the emotions, the characters, the relationships this episode. But now I'm starting to look at the plot and I'm starting to say like, okay, guys, you, once upon a time is usually really fast moving let's kind of get a move on here because you know we went to, we had a purpose in the underworld in episode one here we're on episode seven at this point and they're not any closer to getting out yeah they're not any closer well they're a little bit closer to getting out um and well, one a, of them got out one of them got out and one of them kind of foiled hades plans for uh baby snatching um so there's like there's a little bit of getting around the hades barrier um but, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the Bear King because that really this felt in, all, I think, a lot of ways for me, I think, like the Bear King. And and we had even talked back then, I think, when that aired is like, did they did they introduce this particular element at the right time? I think that we had been thinking they should have maybe switched it with the prior episode. But there are a couple little things in there that really didn't they couldn't mm-hmm. have from a plot perspective. Um, so I it, it looking back, it does feel like a little bit of a. Where did this come from? Um, uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was just felt strange to me. Um, but I think maybe they have to have that, like that one kind of off episode, uh, uh, 
uh, kind of the one that, that sticks out a little bit as, as a little odd uh, each each half season. So, um, like I said, didn't hate it. It just did feel a little bit odd and inauthentic. Well, we know you love Oz, Kurt, so let's get you back on the happy wagon here. We'll start by talking about all the Oz stuff first, and I mean the flashback Oz stuff. We'll obviously save the kiss for the very end, as the episode does here. So it looks like our power duo of Mulan and Ruby, you know, at the end of the Bear King, we see they take off together to find Ruby's pack. She has that entire storied history where it was formerly led by her mother, and she had kind of a a torrid relationship with them. Uh, But they made their way to Oz, uh, I'm wondering maybe Ruby had uh, an extra bean that she took from Tiny that got her into the Enchanted Forest in the first place. Yeah, they kind of yada yada how they got there. Yeah, which, I mean, again, the show is done usually. I think it didn't really matter as long as they were there. I did like, you know, we, we wonder sometimes, have these characters seen certain types of media before when they're in Storybrooke and Ruby flat out says like, I've seen the movie, the wizard of Oz before when I was in Storybrooke. So I thought that was a nice little answer to a perennial question we ask on the show. But even, even then, I think there was an earlier episode back in the back half of season three, where Zelina's first introduced and, you know, Emma and like, I think she's, you know, talked about as a wicked, the wicked witch. And I believe Emma then's like, wait, like in the movie. So it, it seems like the, the one property uh, that at least we were getting consistently like, is being recognized as having some sort of place in the world of Storybrooke and like, well, quote unquote, our world uh, is the Wizards of Oz. It's kind of funny that she's like, yeah, you know, I saw the movie and I, I think it's a book, which is interesting because in the book is where the where the slippers are silver, but it's in the movie where the, the they're, they're the ruby slippers. And I, I did kind of like the, the clever play on the name Ruby Slippers, even though the, the slippers are silver. They use Ruby's name for the title. So I, I, I did kind of like that juxtaposition. So let's talk about when Dorothy met Ruby here, Ruby and Mulan, as uh, Toto makes the first introduction and Dorothy comes in and already, I mean, the impression we got from Dorothy in her previous iterations were that she did seem like a relatively normal but hopeful person. Uh, Here, she seems a lot more standoffish than the last time we saw her. Yeah, it looks like she's, um, she's a lot more militant. Right now, like she's got, a, she's on a mission. Uh, she's she's here to do a job, uh, and she's not going to take crap from anybody. Um, and and I I kind of liked uh, the, the the this Dorothy that that we've seen. I think in in the brief period, the brief moment that I think that we saw her uh, earlier this season, we said she's she's almost got this uh, you know you know pre dark curse Snow White uh, feel to her. Um, a little bit maybe uh, a little bit more. Uh, rough around the edges than maybe even Snow White was uh, when she was living in the woods uh, and, and fighting the fighting Regina. But uh, you know, it's uh, she's definitely, definitely tough. Definitely. I, I, I like, I like her as a character. Well, here's a theory then. Do we think one of the reasons why Ruby fell in love with Dorothy is because she's sort of the, uh, the uh, homosexual analog to Snow White and Ruby has always lusted after Snow White. I don't know if I would go that far. I don't think we've seen evidence that that she's done that, but I think like even in the, um, you know, jumping way ahead to the the final scene, it was very reminiscent of me to Snow White in the, you know, in the glass coffin with the dwarves all around her, except instead of dwarves, they're munchkins. I mean, it was a very kind of almost note for note, uh, you know, restaging of that classic scene. Uh, but with, you know, Ruby swapped in for Prince Charming. Um, so it was, it, it's, uh, there aren't. It's not a perfect parallel, but I. It's. It, I thought it was going to potentially go into an interesting place. 
So it's clear that things are not great between the three of them, specifically Ruby and Dorothy, because, yeah. you know, Dorothy immediately accuses her of being a witch. Well, Ruby well admits, it's because of Toto. I mean, let's be fair. Yeah, well, Toto is the, is the signal here, but I guess Toto's barks also just apply to all sort of magical creatures and not just witches, as Ruby very casually kind of reveals that she is part werewolf. But Toto runs off, and basically they're strange bedfellows in that Ruby knows where Toto's going off to, so they're sort of have to join together here. And that's when they see the green cyclone, meaning the Wicked Witch is back. So this falls directly into the timeline where Zelina had been forced out of Storybrooke back into Oz. So now, as we thought, we were going to see what happens basically between Zelina getting banned back to Oz and when she appears back in Storybrooke to take her baby back. Yes, she wants her baby back. Um, But Rumpel's not even involved this time. I I know, I know. Um, Yeah, and and, uh, if, yeah, first... Dorothy wants nothing to do with, you know, with, with Ruby and, and Mulan. But once we, she kind of sees, you know, Ruby has got this kind of scent tracking ability and knows exactly can follow Toto's trail. Uh, it's like, you know what? She, she really loves that dog. We find out later why. Um, and so it seems like, you know, keeping these two along will be more of an asset than a hindrance. And maybe one of the reasons why I liked this episode is because I did kind of have to take pause for a second and realize like, wait a minute. Right now, we have Little Red Riding Hood, Mulan, and Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz working together. Only a show like Once Upon a Time can pull these characters together. And that's something that drew me in in the very first place with this show. So it's fun to sometimes kind of take a second and think about the fact that they're really taking a mishmash of characters and just throwing them together in various iterations. Yeah, it's almost like a it's almost a twist on where we were this time last year where you had, you know, Cru, you know, Cruella Deville, you know, Ursula the 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 sea witch and um uh and Maleficent working together uh and traveling together. It it was it it's it's almost like the the light side of that coin. And yeah. and again uh, same same reason. That's that's kind of why that's why I really like the show. The those strange combinations, those strange bedfellows of characters you wouldn't normally see uh having a, a story you know crafted around them. Well even with the villainesses though, I would say that there's been Disney media before that has had like, oh the villains take over. And so I've at least in Disney media seen them together in the same picture here these are three characters from three completely separate stories and three completely separate canons so i thought that 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 was a fun way to kind of bring them all together yeah and even like we haven't i was i was gonna say we haven't really seen much of um uh dorothy in the disney uh canon uh or even to the to that extent little red riding hood um uh, I'm trying to remember if if uh, Return to Oz was a Disney flick or not. Um, I think I think it was, and we'll actually talk about a Return to Oz illusion in just a minute. I, you know, what, okay, I I know the the same thing that you're. Okay, I didn't research that one, but the fact that you said that makes me remember that uh, my thinking was correct. So so that's awesome. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that. We'll say that. I mean, in terms of your Dorothy canon, Kurt, how could you forget the portrayal of Dorothy in the Muppet version of The Wizard of Oz? That's not canon. <laughs> you heard it here first, Kurt. Uh, everybody, Kurt Clark says Muppet Wizard of Oz is not canon. Hot take. Hot takes here on this podcast. Exit uh, interviews, Twitter interviews, and Muppet movies not canon. Oh, real hot, <laughs> scorching hot take here. You have solidified, and you are boiling hot. Uh, so the trio finds Alina in the middle of the woods, and essentially she says. Hey, I have your dog and I'll exchange it for your silver slippers. Obviously, she wants them to go back to Storybrooke. Uh, so their plan is to make a sleeping powder to knock out Zelina so they can try to take Toto back herself. 
Um, and Dorothy decides to go out and get some poppies with Ruby. Again, Dorothy's very, acting very standoffish and hardened until she reveals that when she went back to Oz the first time after she erroneously thought the wizard had given her silver slippers when it was essentially Zelina who sent her out uh, because she knew that she tried to kill her. Um, she, When she got back to Oz the first time, her family apparently tried to institutionalize her, which is a super dark take on the story until you realize that tri- that happens uh, in the beginning of Return to Oz. Right. And I believe in the books, it's uh, Ozma of Oz. Ozma was this female queen of Oz that was actually not wicked. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, that the whole, uh, I believe in, even in, in the movie, there was the, the um, kind of the, the electroshock machine uh, kind of was what gave rise to the whole TikTok mechanical man character from the movie. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, there's a whole scene of her kind of escaping an insane asylum in Return to Oz. So the, this is canon. Yeah. And it's, apparently it's also canon that Dorothy did not have Toto until she went back to Oz the second time because the only one who sympathized with her situation this time is Aunt M because screw Uncle Henry. He can go farm on Kansas for all he likes at this point. But Aunt M gave her Toto, I guess, as some sort of form of emotional comfort. So obviously having Toto mm-hmm. being taken in this sense holds even more meaning than it does in a movie. This is a real bonding point for Ruby and Dorothy because, as we remember from Ruby, she has quite the interesting family history as well. Aside from her mother being the leader of this wolf pack, the very first flashback episode was, you know, when she had that boyfriend, Peter, and we thought Peter was the wolf, but no, it turned out Ruby was the wolf, and Ruby killed Peter. And then, you know, her grandmother encouraged her to run out of town with Snow White. So clearly, they both have very complicated family histories, though at this point, who doesn't on Once Upon a Time? Yeah. And this is where this... This this is where things start to feel a little bit inauthentic for me in terms of the attraction that Ruby is feeling toward Dorothy. It just seems, I don't know if it's inauthentic or if it's forced or uh, rushed or I don't know, but it's like, it's, it, it's not at all subtle. And they kind of slap you across the face with where this whole story is going. Uh, uh, even potentially before this in some of the storybook scenes. Um, but yeah, this is at least where we list. This is where we start to kind of see firsthand the uh, the the apparent uh, uh, connection that Ruby is feeling. See, I can feel it here. Um, for me, it might be this next scene when they get to the poppy fields and there's this sort of lingering look amongst each other. Again, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt because let's remember at the end of the day, this is a show about fairy tales and about true love and falling in love at first sight. And that's pretty much what happens here. But because we hadn't seen something like this in a little while, I can understand why there's some incredulity there where you're thinking like, okay, this is going way too fast. This is getting, you know, this is like 50 shades of gray level of writing. And I'm not talking about our, our villain spectrum here. The, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this conversation and why I actually enjoy Ruby's storyline here is that I feel like we finally get some resolution to Ruby's damn storyline. And that makes me really <laughs> happy because like for the first couple seasons, we found out a lot about her. And I guess due to scheduling things, it sucks that she basically got written out of the story for a couple of years. But we kind of left things on an unresolved note in that like she was seeking for a community, even during the Bear King. She's like, well, I need to find my pack. But even here, she's admitting like, well, I've been looking for my pack for a long time. And I'll admit you know, my, my appeal is waning in it. Maybe I don't want to do that anymore. And so, you know, she'll find a a different type of pack, uh, I guess, 
But I'd like that at least she's realizing like, hey, maybe the thing that I really wanted all along is not something that's really appealing to me right now. Yeah, it's um, it's I, I agree that there's nice. It's nice that there is this resolution there um, or at least that, that it's kind of like painting the, the, the road. And it, it's I think I think early on Red was one of those characters where it seemed like she just kind of had disappeared and you really didn't get any further story from her. So I was, I was very glad to see that we get, we get a kind of a continuing story there, uh, especially at where the things left off in last season or the, the first part of last season. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, who's the better nicknamer here? Uh, Ruby, Dorothy or Sawyer from lost Sawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I think you do a lot better than Kansas or Wolfie. <laughs> Although. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For any Big Brother UK listeners out there, I can't get past the Wolfie name because she was on the season a few years back and it was horrible. Um, but yeah, you know, actually, you know what? Kansas isn't that bad. It's better than Dallas from Big Brother Canada. <laughs> exactly. We got we got Kansas Sis here. Kansas exactly. Sis, y'all. I'm going to come in. I'm going to wreck things. I'm going to play a big game here in Oz. Yeah, yeah. It, it's... Oh, we're uh, move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's move on. Uh, let's we're in a different land from Canada entirely. Canada doesn't doesn't even exist in this world. But as they're gathering poppies, uh, two flying monkeys attack in our CGI moment of the week, and Ruby is able to transform into a wolf to get them to escape. And as they get back to Mulan, they sort of give the recap. Though any sort of common ground that the two of them found, it seems like that ground was immediately. Uh, salted because Dorothy just now seems very weird around Ruby. And when Ruby tries to go see her later on, she finds that she is gone. She thinks that it may be because she ran away because things were awkward, but no, we'll find out later. It's because Dorothy wanted to try to go rogue and sneak into the palace on her own to get Toto. Yeah. Uh, So I want to talk about this conversation between Mulan and Ruby. I do kind of feel bad for Mulan here because, again, in this pre-promotional press for the season, I do remember the creator saying something about, like, we want to work a little bit with the same-sex relationship again. And so my mind got going saying, like, okay, this means Mulan is finally going to find happiness. And when we saw Ruby come up, I think we, I was shipping it a little bit. But no, Mulan is ever the old maid here, as it turns out that Ruby is the one that's now pursuing the relationship. Though Mulan's a good sport about it. I feel like she gives really good advice in this one-on-one talk. Always the bridesmaid. Um, Unfortunately. Plus, I mean, she's one of the more well-traveled characters. Um, and so I always get the feeling that there's, you know what, there's going to be another port for Mulan to potentially uh, find find romance. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's... it. I, I did, I did, I mean, I remember feeling bad about Mulan back when Aurora was like, uh, you know, kind of not on the table as an option. I mean, Aurora goes for a guy who doesn't even have a soul. I mean, Prince Philip still has no soul. Um, so, uh, it's, it's, I felt bad for her then. I feel a little bad for her now, but it's, it's not as bad. And I guess she's going to move on and find somebody. I don't know if it'll happen on the show, but she'll find somebody. What do you think is the significance of, Dorothy like leaving a scrap of fabric behind do you think it was intentional at all or do you think like something just got ripped in her transit out of the poppy fields and she just kind of left it behind accidentally yeah I was a little bit confused by that um I I wasn't sure if maybe it had been left behind so like it was like well yeah you know red could follow her scent you know technically um and I didn't know if that was like intentional um 
it was it was that was a little bit confusing for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure either, and I'm not entirely sure what Dorothy's volition was on this, but she's just so worried about Toto that she decided to still go off on her own. Was she really that weirded out about, you know, about Ruby transforming into a wolf, or was it more so her dealing with her feelings for her at the time? I think there's a, there's something in that that I unfortunately think, you know, some deleted scenes might have been able to give us a little more information about that. I mean, we do see at the end that that Dorothy says that she took off on her own because she was, didn't want to lose Ruby to Zelina. If that's the case, I mean, that's, that kind of works against the idea that she left the scrap of clothing there so that she could be followed by scent. Um, so I'm not, I'm not entirely, entirely sure kind of what was up that up, what was up with that. It was kind of, uh, uh, Chekhov's fabric swatch. <laughs> <laughs> yes coming up next on project runway all-stars exactly you have to make a complete piece of, you have to make a complete outfit using uh, a scrap of clothing from a fictional character or no this is, that would be a good challenge actually if you took like a random swatch of clothing from your first challenge of the season and for the last challenge of the season you have to incorporate it into a final design i could i could make that work yeah, it make make it work. Uh, so speaking of that fabric, let's sort of time travel with it to the present day, where Ruby has now been taken into the loft, and they're trying to figure out what happened to her. But the only thing they find on her is the scrap. But I think the more important thing that we cut to here is we pick up from Zelina's storyline. This has happened the past few episodes, and this episode we get a lot more of her and Hades again. Yeah, at several points, and even like. Zelina talking about Hades when he's not there and Hades talking about Zelina when he's not, when she's not there. I think apart from the, uh, the, the Dorothy and Ruby relationship, I think the second most prevalent relationship in this episode is probably the one between Zelina and Hades. Yeah. And I know I'd argued when, you know, Ira Decay first aired a couple weeks ago that I was saying, Oh, I, I think Hades has, you know, other intentions at hand and he's using Zelina. I've really softened to that concept over the past couple weeks, specifically this episode. It does feel like what Hades is doing in pursuing Zelina is really genuine in my opinion. And jury's still out for me. Um, we, we, it's a little bit like the early days of Rumpelstiltskin or Mr. Gold in Storybook. It's like, we don't really know what his ultimate goal is. I mean, like, does he want the heroes out of Storybook so that, you know, they'll stop meddling and, or does, does he want them to stay in Storybook so he has control over them? I mean, like, he doesn't seem to necessarily, um, want, uh, uh, you know, control over the, uh, our reality, the, the, the storybook world. Um, but is, is his intentions are a very, very hazy for a, a once upon a time villain. No, I don't know. I think it's just because he starts doing things without telling Zelina this episode. I don't think it's part of a big master plan for him to reveal like, oh, I've constructed this all along. I did this without telling you because I knew you would react this way so that I'd be able to manipulate you somehow. It does feel like he's almost like a lovesick puppy this episode. And he's sort of acting in what he thinks is her best interest, starting with this very first scene when he comes to her and says like, hey, Ruby's here. I think it's, you know, she obviously chased you here. Um, and you know, Zelina says, I, I want to go back to Oz because I, I just don't want to do something I regret, especially after I start making things up with my sister. And he says, well, you know, Hey, remember your daughter's down here and you want to, you want to get her back because that was your end goal. Um, and he again, and says, 
makes the ultimatum stay with me and she refuses so he says okay i guess i'm going to take care of the wolf my way he's, he's like whatever you decide i'm going to do this and 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 it's interesting i think the, the zelina thing it was kind of a mix both of you know if if i confront her in some way i'm going to do something that's going to you know irreparably harm my relationship with her sister that's kind of being rebuilt but then she also has this fear that um that uh that it, it may harm what she had already done uh, may also harm, harm her. So it's, it's kind of like, like if, whenever Regina learns what has transpired, that's going to harm whatever goodwill has already happened there. So it's a mix of Regina finding out what had been done and her kind of, you know, pulling a, a, a Lindsay from uh, worlds apart and thinking, well, I just have to remove myself from the situation because I don't know what I'm going to potentially do. And, 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 and I can't be held responsible for my actions. So I'm just going to avoid, avoid the situation. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. She's, she's, in, it seems to be at least perceive herself as being in a very tough uh, position, but ultimately she's talking about the fact that she put us cast a, a sleeping spell on Dorothy and, and not, I'm not being a Zelina apologist here, but it was kind of in self-defense. I mean, the same thing was going to happen to her. Um, so I didn't really necessarily think that it was all that bad, uh, that a sleeping spell had put on Dorothy. And probably that's because like my hear sleeping spell, I immediately think true love's kiss. And then I think because of that is where I immediately clued in. Oh, it's going to be Ruby. I mean, there was no surprise at any point in this, what was going to happen. Yeah, but I will say that, again, Zelina actually points this out in the episode that, like, yes, what she did might not have been very harmful, but it's going to come across to these heroes, hey, look what the Wicked Witch did to one of your, the friends of one of your closest friends. Let's get her. And it's actually really interesting if we're plotting, again, the parallel course of Zelina and Regina here. Regina, throughout this episode, even though Zelina is doing nothing uh, aside from the sleeping curse stuff is saying like, well, Zelina must have done this. Oh man, I knew it. I knew she was up to no good. This parallels a lot what I feel like they were doing with Regina in seasons two and three where she didn't do anything sometimes that people would be like, Zelina you, or Regina, you must have been the one who did this. Yeah. And so I think it's, this is Regina's turn to do her own little metaphorical witch hunt. Yeah, and, and to be fair, it would be like, well, the only reason I cast a sleeping spell on her is because that she was coming to put cast a sleeping spell on me. Well, the only reason we were going to do that is because you took Toto from us, which is also was which is really kind of the crappy thing that happened <laughs> yeah exactly i mean she she did use it as an inciting incident though again she uses it to justify i need to go get my daughter so i will do that at all costs uh, let's take a pause on the zelina and haiti stuff for a second and let's revisit our bell and gold stuff because last episode did end rather interestingly with gaston falling into the drink of the river of the lost souls and as was expected bell is feeling a little guilty about this though I don't know if it's completely justified no. because, again, as we pointed this out last episode, Bell's like, I had the choice of giving him compassion, but I killed him. No. To be fair, the way it happened, you bumped the, him to protect your husband and he fell into the river. That's ex- I, I had the exact same thing in my notes. I was like, she's definitely overblowing what she had done. And like I said, it looked like an accident, to be honest. It didn't look like you actually sent him to a face worse, fate worse than death. What got me even more was, though, that... Um, as much as she's it's it's interesting and it goes back to our discussion last week about the ends justifying the means and like can uh is is an act in and of itself good or bad or is it the why you're doing it or is it the end outcome because she actually does say that she kind of says if the contract it would have all been worth it had the contract been destroyed but because the contract wasn't destroyed because of it i'm a bad person it's almost like she was saying 
if her actions um, of bumping Gaston into the river had resulted in the destruction of the contract, she would have been okay with it, which was a really, really kind of uh, strange twist of logic to make in the whole thing. Yeah. I, it, it's, I mean, the way she's dealing with this, again, for a very smart book smart character is a little strange and especially because again if i make the comparison like i did last week to after emma killing cruella she is just racked with guilt over the 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 thought that she might have accidentally killed someone to the point of where like gold is like great this is an opportunity for us to take down hades together let's keep looking for a solution but bell says like no i have to deal with my guilt on my own essentially which again you could expect from someone who is not used to really fighting that much maybe more so arguing her points through various you know bibliographic references but as soon as she gets a little <laughs> bit of blood on her hands she's furiously washing her hands yeah and she and she's afraid that if she tried to do something alongside gold that he would just make her do something else that she would regret and, and although she didn't come out and say it it almost sounded a little bit like she was blaming the end result of gaston's uh death let's call it that a little bit on gold. I mean, she was taking a lot of it on her, on her, on herself, but the way she said that, you know, if you just make me do something else, I regret it could almost a little twist of that makes it seem like she's a little bit, uh, needling, uh, blames gold a little bit for the death of Gaston as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess it sort of takes two to tango there. A rather deadly tango. So uh, back at the loft, Ruby is awake now and she sort of gets the four one one. She reveals that she used a tracking spell to find Zelina, which again, I might have to do some research about tracking spells because I don't remember if tracking spells can work across realms. Um, Cause I seem to remember like when Ariel uh, used the tracking spell to find Eric, I think his cape just sort of like sank into the sea. And they alluded to the fact like, oh, he must be dead, but they didn't actually like go take them to another universe. Uh, So that's that's to be determined, I guess, by our listeners. All right. Uh, Let's let's get let's get past this Oz timeline stuff for now. I want to talk about soul phone uh, because the soul phone is now dead uh, because they realize, you know, Snow realizes like, oh, wait, we haven't talked to Neil in a while. We should we should call our baby. We haven't called our baby in a while. So David Hook and Henry, the the male heroes, because Robin Hood's still off in the woods doing God knows what. I think he's um, he's hiding uh, uh, Zelina's daughter. That's how I kind of rationalized it. Yeah, hopefully not in a tree. Uh, hopefully they found a house somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So they go to the phone booth, only to find a very long line, and Cruella is supervising a man named Claude who is going to remove the phone. Kurt, did you remember who Claude was? The only Claude I was able to find was a reference to the main villain from Hunchback in Notre Dame. So Claude was <laughs> one of the Queen's hunch, henchmen, Queen Cora. Oh. And basically what happened was uh, she was he was mainly seen in season two. Uh, remember when Cora had captured Belle at some point yeah. and then Hook like infiltrated the castle to try to get her to give him up for information about Rumpelstiltskin to get his revenge. And that's when Hook gets kind of coerced into going to Wonderland, get the gets the hook enchanted right, right. and all that. So Hook kills Claude. Claude is, is one of the henchmen of Korra. He kills him when he sneaks into the castle. And then Korra says, hey, you can go to Wonderland, but you need to bring somebody back. You need a body. Take Claude's body with you. So that's when Claude died. And now he's down here. He's basically just like a big silent brute force. And I guess that's what they needed because nobody else could pull a phone booth out of the wall. 
Yeah, I did that that makes sense. I I was researching Disney canon as opposed to Once Upon a Time canon. Oh, you were thinking of Claude Frollo. Yeah, uh, I I which is completely my mistake. I should have when I was looking into it looked into Once Upon a Time canon. Completely my fault. So what did you think here of uh, Corella said that it was Hades' order and choice because they wanted to remove again the hope, the growth that the heroes have sort of inspired in the underworld, and by removing the, literally the only method of communication where you can talk to people above ground uh you are festering some decay in there do you think this is a good strategy on hades part um uh, not really um well i don't know it's like for our heroes i don't necessarily think so um although it it did seem like regina's concern about haunting neil uh, well, uh, again, it's like, yo, we haven't talked in a while. You should go talk. You should go do this. You should go do this. Seemed a little bit to come out of nowhere. Um, it, it seems like most of the, the kind of the, the nameless drones in the underworld, perhaps it did. We, it, perhaps it did serve for those folks to kind of sap, uh, hope from them. Um, but for, from our heroes, I don't think so, not necessarily so much, but, um, I do think it, it may have had like a larger effect on the, the populace, uh, of, of the underworld. Yeah, by the end of this episode, we're going to see Hades make a speech, at least to the denizens of Auntie's Diner, to say, like, hey, don't interact with these guys. And I guess we'll see in the next few episodes if that gossip spreads throughout the rest of the town for, you know, the the heroes to basically become untouchables. Because if that does end up becoming a thing, this could very much be a stepping stone leading up to that, that they're saying, like, hey, it's, it's because of these guys that now we can't talk with our family members anymore. Yeah, it's it it's it, that's a good point that the fact that she or sorry the the fact that um Hades is could potentially lay the blame at the feet of the heroes for all of the uh his sudden interest in perhaps meddling with the lives of the population yeah uh tara asks a question about hauntings in general because now that our level one haunting a la the soul phone seems to be no longer available what do you think the other levels of haunting are and do you think our heroes can access that to talk to anyone else up in the real world i'm wondering if like the level two haunting somehow involves them like interacting with a ouija board i don't know if they have to like you know write something down on a uh the bottom of a placemat in the blind witch's diner in granny's diner um maybe that uh and then that transfers over to a ouija board i'm not entirely sure um but i think maybe that's level two well remember that we actually kind of had that a little bit remember in season two when they, or season three when they had to channel cora to figure out what happened with zelina and they they basically did kind of a seance with the object that killed her true so she was performing level two magic then i guess level yeah or maybe (laughs) maybe so if level one is audio maybe level two is only visual it's like there's no sound but there's some sort of visage of the deceased person and maybe level three is a combination of both and that's where the seance comes in oh see i was thinking level one was the best like like, oh you're going in reverse you're going like defcon level yeah 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 like level one survivor (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah yeah you're going you're going in reverse i was thinking of like video game levels that makes where sense the better levels are the later ones okay i see so we talked before about how you know they accost selena at her farm and selena says she plans to use the silver slippers to get back to oz and she admits you know this is what happened to dorothy uh, we have an interesting line from regina where she tells selena to fight your instincts which again is really regina basically telling selena i did it you can do it too come over to the light side um so Zelina is now in an interesting place, kind of like the flashback bargaining for the shoes. 
uh, to get to her daughter. And again, she's sort of almost trying to make a trade here in order to get those silver slippers in her hands once again. Yeah. And it's interesting that like if she had just leveled with Dorothy in the flashback episode saying, you know what, like as opposed to, I'll give you your dog. If you give me these, the slippers, I mean, she could have just returned the dog and say, Hey, could I, you know, borrow the slippers and I'll give them back. And here's why I want them. I think and she's, it's kind of being turned around on her and she's seeing kind of how easy it was just for Regina to ask for the slippers from her. And like, Regina's like, you know, just, you just do one good thing. Just make, this is, it's, it's like, you know, it, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. All you have to do is mm-hmm. just hand over the slippers and let us use them. And she does. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, again, like you said, it's that remark that she makes about like, you could have made a bunch of bad decisions in the past, but if you make one good decision now, that's going to start you on the path to recovery almost. And I'm really liking, you know, the growth and not decay of this relationship between Zelina and Regina, because it was a very strained one, considering that Zelina was brought up her entire Mm. life to be jealous of Regina and make her think that she was her sworn enemy and you know the daughter that got everything that she didn't but now they're starting to see more eye to eye and especially since Regina keeps saying I was in your situation I was in your situation I think while Zelina is going to be very conflicted and eventually go over to Hades side or so we think by the end of this episode it's clear that her mind's a little more complicated now than it was when their relationship began right and she talks about how she um later on sorry we we see her talking about now she's never gonna get a happy ending it'd be interesting in this just what you were just saying kind of made me think of this is as much as hades is trying to kill hope or the concept of hope not a person named hope uh, in the not yet not yet watch the the being that lives inside the pen is called hope yeah um the uh it's he, he he may be inadvertently uh, missing or causing hope to, to rise elsewhere in terms of is in the form of Zelina in terms of at least hope around becoming good hope around getting a happy ending, hope around falling in love with Hades hope in terms of repairing her relationship with her sister. There's a lot of hope that's at a potential for hope around Zelina right now. And I don't think Hades is doing anything to quash that hope. Um, so and I, I don't know if that's going to turn out to be anything or not, but something you're saying right, uh, just kind of made me think about all the hope that it's, uh, is currently surrounding Zelina. And, and I, th- I think there was a lot of kind of potential redemption story for her in this episode. I certainly hope so, because, again, while I was pissed to see Zelina come back at the end of season four, and I felt like that was, might have been shoehorned in in the way that you think maybe this romance between Dorothy and Red might have been shoehorned in, I think if they're using it to kind of soften her character and at least make her character interesting, then I'm all for it. And it seems like they've been doing that so far. And again, we'll talk more about this in a little bit. So now that they have the shoes, Ruby is still saying, okay, well, she's under the sleeping curse. So it's hopeless. She needs, you know, the kiss of her one true love, but they figure, wait a minute, her aunt M had died. As we learned from, you know, Regina kissing Henry, true love can also work across bloodlines. So she should be the solution. Uh, so they find her gravestone. Great. No cracks, no tipped. She's still there. But they realize, hey, getting her up there to kiss her might be difficult because it'll be a gross zombie kiss. So it turns out that the blind witch's throwaway joke about David's breath being sold on the black market actually comes in handy here. Yeah, I was uh, I was a little bit. Oh, that actually had payoff. 
that actually <laughs> that actually meant something. I it seemed I think when we first encountered it that we were like, okay, that's kind of a thing, I guess. Um, but yeah, it came back it came back to actually be meaningful here. So that would kudos to the writers for looping yeah. it back. And I guess, you know, when it comes to our technology of traveling across realms, I guess an essence of a person can travel across a realm as well. So, you know, like they said, they, their plan was to get Aunt M to blow a kiss into the, the, the bottle. They'd be able to release that and it would still kind of be fresh. There's, there's no real shelf life for the kiss, I guess. Yeah, I guess, uh, I, I guess so. Um, I know maybe it doesn't have to be refrigerated. Maybe it's like a Twinkie or like some peanut butter. So you just stir the oil back in and the kiss is as good as new. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of an oily kiss, but as soon as you uh, massage those lips a little bit, it's just (laughs) like old times. So the the male heroes come in and talk about how, hey, the phone's broken. And this is when a really interesting decision is made, which again, Emma, Miss, I feel bad because I feel like everyone's here for me, decides, okay, this is the final straw. You guys have another son that's back there. That's an infant that needs you. One of you has to go back. This was weird for me. This 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 was the start of of the weird stuff. Like I say, I, I while the Ruby and uh and Dorothy uh romantic storyline, I was God, the only issue I had with that was that it felt a little inauthentic. This seemed shoehorned into me. This was like really strange. You know, suddenly Mary Margaret freaks out. What if Hades is making a move on Storybrooke? Neil may be in danger. You two should go. Um, and. And and I'm thinking the entire time. Well, you you can't go. Luckily, Regina. I was I I didn't know if they were gonna like completely miss this or if there was gonna be a loop like like something that we'd have to like retroactively figure out. But Regina points out, um, you know, we're still trapped here with our names on our grave. So you know, if Auntie M can't go, we can't go. And they say, oh, but you know what, David can go back. Dad Dad can go back. See, I, I will agree that it did sort of come out of nowhere and that, you know, I think they were trying to write in the, oh, let's visit the soul phone thing again to give them a reason to go back up to the surface. Plus, outside of the show, Jennifer Goodwin is pregnant once again. Oh, dear and God. So she, and so she, I mean, she has, she had to go on a maternity leave, I figure, at probably around this time. So they thought, hey, this would be a great way to kind of write her out of the show for the last five episodes. But that being said, I might earn a little bit of ire from this from our listeners. But I honestly like Snow and David more when they're separated. I think when they're together, almost like Marshall and Lily from How I Met Your Mother, they kind of morph into one kind of amorphous blob. It's almost kind of lacking of personality and are sort of just wet blankets that blend into the background and come into prominence sometimes. But with the two of them separated, they're each able to pursue their separate storylines. And I feel like both the characters are strongest when they're off on their own doing their own things. Rachel and Brendan. (laughs) <laughs> that's very true no one gets between me and my baby yeah i mean they they did better like when they when they are apart and i and but it's uh, you know pregnancy aside i i thought this seemed really like it was coming out of no it was it was mostly her reaction and sudden fear that uh david or sorry that uh hades was going to make a move on the surface world and that neil was in danger that's uh that that really kind of threw me for a loop. Well, at least again, for all the crowing that Emma does about like, why are you guys down here? I feel bad. You shouldn't be down here with me. At least she also made a decision. She finally said like, okay, you guys need to leave. Yeah. Which again, I'd rather have her take action, albeit very suddenly than just again, sit there whining about it for the next few episodes. True. True. 
let's talk about this Bell and Zelina storyline, Kurt, because this is a or this this scene, I should say, uh, because you know they're almost in. They're mothers, but they're mothers in very separate places. I mean, both sort of have their children held at an arm's length. Zelina, literally, it's it's being hidden in the forest by Robin Hood. Belle is in danger of losing her child, essentially. And Belle kind of needs help from her, or at least she says, like, hey, you know Hades, right? Can you put in a good word for me to break that curse? Um, but they kind of also gab to each other and sort of admit to each other their true feelings about their respective mates. Yeah. Like neither of them trust, neither of them basically trust their main love interest in the story, um, which, which is un- unfortunate and, and makes Belle a little sick to her stomach. No, wait, that's morning sickness. <laughs> yep. Yep. Which again is a nice little spurring reminder to her that, Oh wait, let's remember that. Dark Swan had rushed Zelina's pregnancy along substantially in order to get the child out of her so she could use Zelina as a vessel to kill her and rid the rid the world of the Dark One. And then that gives Belle the idea that we'll find out later is for her to induce her own sleeping curse so that Hades can't touch her whatsoever. Yeah, I, and I thought this whole... Again, this was something to me, like especially right on the heels of, I was like, why is Mary Margaret suddenly like freaking out about Hades going after baby Neil? I thought that the whole, you know, fear now that Bell has that Hades is going to pull some sort of like gestation fast forward on her, uh, that it, I, I thought that came out of left field too, and was she's like freaking out about nothing? Although, you know, very emotional. I can I maybe understand it a little bit more from from Bell. It just seemed to come out of uh, out of nowhere, um, and I have to say, like when Zelina said, "Like I've got an idea," some something in the way things were phrased about, like you know, what if we could put things on pause or, or whatever. I immediately felt that okay, this is going to lead to a slurp, sleep, a, a, a slurping curse, uh, is a sleeping curse, a slur, a slurpy curse. A sl- the bell's just going to be like buried in frozen slush that's tasty and sugary. Mm, blue raspberry slurpy curse. I'd, I'd stay there for an indefinite period of time until my true love woke me up with my blue chapped lips. Mm. <laughs> there was, uh, again, another interesting parallel between Regina and Zelina here in the fact that Regina literally says, like, I will never get my happy ending, which was, yeah. which was, that's, that's like Regina season 4A to a point where she says, there's nothing left for me in this world. I know I'm going to have a sucky life for the rest of my life. Yeah, and not just 4A. It seemed like, you know, at several points during the pre- the preceding seasons as well. Yeah, though I think 4, four was specific because that was when Marion came back and she realized like, yeah. hey, the one person that I was going to be happy with is already married. One interesting Easter egg in this scene, Kurt, that I don't know if you realize, uh, Zelina was drinking a whiskey called Malak. Yeah, just like, uh, isn't that like the devil or demon? Uh, so Malak is the, was the sun god in ancient Canaanite religion and apparently... Uh, firstborn children were sacrificed to him. So oh. that's a nice little Easter egg that kind of ties into Bell's storyline this episode. And I was trying to see what kind of uh, alcohol it was. I was I was hoping it was rum because then it could be demon rum. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I didn't wasn't able to kind of catch what exactly kind of li- uh, liquor this uh, Moloch was. Yeah, and it looked, I mean, it began with an M, and I thought it was McCutcheon, since, you know, they've used that one before, but it seems like there are multiple varieties of uh, whiskey in the Once Upon a Time world. Yeah, that's fine. So, I want to talk about this David and Hook scene, because there are really few and far between David and Hook scenes over the course of this show, and it's an interesting relationship, because this is, you know, the dad who's kind of renegade younger guy, or 
not necessarily younger guys since Hook is actually older than David, I believe. Um, but this guy who's dating his daughter and they don't really work together too, too much. But here again, we have a scene of strange bedfellows of the two of them coming together where David is uh, vocalizing his guilt about, you know, being the one to go and leaving behind his wife who honestly misses the child more. And Hook says like, basically convinces him like, Hey, you have to take the opportunity to get out of the underworld and start looking out for yourself. Because if you don't, we're, you know, that's, that's going to leave us a little hopeless. Right. And, and the fact that, that Hook made the point, you know, your name's not on the headstone. So you get to go back. I had thought where this was going to potentially go. And I think I was gonna be very, very upset if it had, I thought that David was going to try to strike a deal with Hades to swap his name for Snow White's name on the tombstone. Um, and then I was going to like, think, and, and I'm much less upset with what did end up happening, but I was like, okay, you're just suddenly, I, I would have been very upset if he had done that, gotten me to deal with the enemy in some way. I think my penmanship teacher from elementary school was probably more pissed with what they ended up doing because we'll talk about that later, but what chicken scratch? Yeah, we know, we, we know what happens if it's cracked and we know what happens if it's side. What, what happens if it's like defaced by, by what looks like a six-year-old? A six year, a six exactly. If someone like, if some kid in the underworld decided, some meddling kid like came by, scratched out Mary Market's name and wrote like, you know, Toby was here. Does that mean that Toby would be forever cursed to stay behind in the underworld? <laughs> Yeah, it's like, yeah, okay, we put your name on there, but technically we could put like Zelina's name on there, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you could put Hades' name on there. Uh, but he's like a resident. I think you need to put like an outsider, maybe. I'm not quite sure how that works. Um, but yeah, maybe they, they don't have the admin privileges to put Hades' name on the tombstone. <laughs> yeah, just erase those names and put like Zelina, Zelina's baby, and uh, I don't know, whoever else is expendable. <laughs> horse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's no bring a horse. Have some, you know, have Ruby go back to Oz, send a random munchkin down there and then write his name on the last tombstone. Yeah, it's not like a, there's a it's not like seven dwarves. You're you're not number dependent on the munchkin. Just send a random munchkin in. Yeah, as long as it's not the mayor or one of the lollipop guild, I think you're good. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk. A Let's talk about this new piece of architecture in Underbrook. Oh, which then, wow. <laughs> our arrival diner, Kurt. Auntie's Chicken and Waffles. Oh, um, I want to go there. I, I would die to go there, both literally and figuratively. Yeah. Um, I was like... Yeah, it's, I, I like I like the little bit the moment where they they're talking to the blind witch. I mean, there was an interesting moment when you know Ruby's trying to say, you know, this is my diner, and the blue witch is saying, well, not really, not until you you know you're dead. Um, and but you know, we I know who this Auntie M is. Uh, she's the biggest competition. And then you cut to like this diner out in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, what? Like, there's that random. Obviously, we know about the rabbit hole. Uh, uh, the unfortunately named rabbit hole. And we, we know about that random, like kind of dimly lit Italian restaurant, which I still think is probably from Lady and the Tramp. But, um, yeah, whole nother restaurant. I was actually, I was actually a little bit giddy to see this. I was actually very, very pleased to see this as, as non canon as this is. Um, I thought this was funny. And then it just really, really took a really tragic turn. <laughs> Well, it reminded me a little bit of a Seinfeld episode where uh, I think, you know, George was trying to get the gang to go to a diner besides monks. It turns out the other, other diner was actually really crappy. Like, it reminded me of this in that it was, like, basically the mirror image of Granny's. Though, I'll admit, Auntie's might appeal to me a little bit more than Granny's at this point. Do you like your rotisserie chicken? 
I love ch- chicken and waffles is, is one of my vices. It's just the perfect amount of sweet and savory, though. I don't know. I don't know what their business plan is now that the proprietor has uh, gone into the river of lost souls. Yeah, there was, there was a, a brief shot of the menu. I saw, like everything had chicken. In it. it was like chicken burger. Uh, I think there was chicken, uh, like chicken tacos. Um, so I, I, Ty, I, Ty Trang would not go to this restaurant anytime soon. Yeah, it, it's one of those six situations where like Mike the chicken is the mascot of the of Granny's chicken and waffles. Um, but yeah, I was like, I, this was just a surreal moment for me. Be, a because there was a whole nother uh, eating establishment, and true, it was in the underworld and not in Storybrooke. But um, yeah, and then you suddenly just meet Auntie M, this whole new character who probably going to be around for a while. <laughs> Yeah, I but yeah. Uh, about that. <laughs> so, yeah, so they go along with the plan. Auntie M seems totally fine going along with it. And I think they correctly assume that Dorothy was her unfinished business. We don't know how, you know, things left between them before Dorothy decided to take back off to Oz with the silver slippers. But as she blows a kiss now, explain to me what you thought happened, Kurt, because it seems like did Hades enchant the bottle so it turned her into liquid did he just enchant her right there right then to turn her into liquid i'm confused as to how she immediately just melted down into something that would eventually go into the river of lost souls no, he, he, he he i it sounded like he said that he had basically poisoned the soup with water from the river of lost souls and so when she drank the soup at the beginning it finally worked its way through her system into her system and that was what had actually turned her i don't think it had anything to do with the vial and she had drank some basically some taint it was tainted soup oh okay tainted soup that makes more sense so i guess that was Chekhov's soup can almost yeah. in that uh, you're, you're also hoping that like nobody else in the restaurant was was having the soup yeah, everyone just starts <laughs> melting um i i honestly i just the way that she was dressed i thought she was like turning into an aunt jemima syrup bottle at first <laughs> That would, that would be very cruel on Hades. Just to turn people into inanimate objects. It's basically like Beauty and the Beast all over again. Yeah, I'm like, oh, she's turning into a glass bottle of herself. But then she like starts going all liquidy. I'm like, ooh, ooh, this is dark. This is this is this is like this is this was like one of the darkest moments. This is like top probably top five darkest moments for me in the entire series. This is darker than finding out that children exist in the underworld. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's the, you know, kids have unfinished business all the time <laughs> and, and they die. No, this, the, the, what, what the, the, it shocked me. I did not expect this to happen and it was graphic. And, uh, for, for that reason, I, I this gets this makes my top five. I'm trying to think what else would be in the top five. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but <laughs> off off season podcast, off, Kurt's darkest yeah. five moments from I, once upon a time. I was honestly kind of shocked when this happened, um, and yeah, so yeah, it, it, interesting twist, writers. <laughs> I do have a question about the River of Lost Souls, and this question comes from Rachel. So. When the team of the heroes eventually defeats Hades, will the people in the River of Lost Souls, so Mila, Gaston, and M, will they be saved? And I guess this connects to the larger question of, you know, we're going to assume that Hades is going to be defeated in at least a couple of episodes. Is the underworld going to cease to exist? Is everyone just going to turn back to normal? What do you think is going to happen to the River of Lost Souls and the underworld as a whole after Hades is gone? I well, here's the thing. I don't think Hades is going to go anywhere. I mean, and, and I, I think yeah, I think he will be defeated, but I think he will still exist. I mean, this this is like saying if um, uh, uh, if if Donald Trump is defeated, you know, you know, you know that Trump Tower will just disappear. It's no, I think it's like 
we even saw, and again, I'm going back to classical mythology, like, you know, the afterlife and the underworld was a thing that was bestowed upon Hades. So it's like, it basically still be in existence. I think it's just that Hades may be elsewhere, but I honestly think where the season's panning out, isn't going to be with the defeat or destruction of Hades. I think that I, I think he'll, the underworld will still be a place. He may be in charge of it, or maybe there, there might, he might, you know, there might be the, um, uh, the, the the sorcerer's apprentice version of uh, Hades apprentice mm-hmm. uh, where somebody takes over maybe you know Henry gets another job um, oh god yeah. that'd be torn between two worlds yeah so I, I i i don't think that the underworld is something that would just it only exists because Hades exists uh, i think that that e- even if something were to happen to Hades and he were to be you know quote unquote destroyed um I think the underworld would continue to exist. There just have to be, you know, whoever vanquishes him may end up having to oversee the underworld. I don't know. But I, yeah, I think that the river of lost souls are souls that are going to be lost and that we're not going to see them. I could be wrong, but I think we've seen the last of Gaston and Antium, unfortunately, and, uh, and Mila. Uh, so one, one and done for Antium. Merely a bit player in this episode of Once Upon a Time, though. Who knows if Dorothy randomly appears in, you know, season six or season seven and she gets a flashback episode. Maybe maybe she'll come back like a lot of people this season. I want to talk a little bit about this r- r- rousing, and I'll put that in quotations, speech that Hades gives to these denizens of the diner. Essentially saying like, hey, anyone who tries to help these people, this is what's going to happen to you. You know, again, we talked about the the method before of, of what Hades tried to do with removing the phone from the phone booth. Is this effective as well in your point of view? Uh, I think so. I think it was a, a good a good uh, demonstration of power and kind of instilling fear in the uh, in the denizens of the underworld. Um, and I really liked his line about well, you know, what's a savior to do when nobody wants to be saved? I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to throw in Emma's face as well. Um, so I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, that again he's doing these things that will kind of vanquish the hope and the spirits, no pun intended, of the denizens of the underworld, the mass uh, of people that live there. But in terms of if he's trying to you know douse the hopes of our band of heroes, I don't think he's necessarily doing a good job of that. I think the only thing that he's really accomplished on that front has been with bell uh, and like, you know, Gaston's death and, you know, she's blaming herself. So I can see that potentially affecting her hope. But other than that, I think everybody else keeps kind of trudging on forward, trying to make things happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not so much that he's manipulating people anymore as much as he's just using brute force and his own power. He's saying like, Hey, look, I can send people to the river of lost souls whenever I want. Hey, look, I can push you off a cliff and send you to hell. Yeah, you know, come at me essentially, and so I think he's basically trying to say, like, okay, you know, appealing to them on an emotional and mental level doesn't work. Let me just show how freaking strong I am as a god. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about this scene between Ruby and Snow White. They're sort of heart to heart because you do forget again, since Ruby has been off the show for a long time, that they they were pretty much best friends in yeah. Storybrooke, and especially in the Enchanted Forest as well. And so, you know, Ruby is, is nervous about like, oh, I wonder who Dorothy's true love kiss will be. And so it's like, so takes your point of view and says, okay, we know it's you. Even when they were talking on the, on Zelina's porch about, 
uh, who's going to give, uh, you know, uh, Dorothy her, you know, true love's kiss. I thought at that point, Snow White was going to say something about, well, obviously it's going to be you, right, Ruby? Um, so, well, yeah, to be fair though, you don't want to out your friend in front of all these people <laughs> that she just met or that she, or that she, she doesn't, she doesn't know as well as you do. No, I, and I completely was glad that she didn't because I thought it was going to be kind of an awkward conversation. Um, and it was even still here a little bit, uh, a, li- a little bit awkward, but also a little bit nice that there was this moment between friends and that she felt comfortable that she could say this to her. Um, but uh, Mary Mary's like, okay, level with me. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I'll say that again, this presumably might be the last we see of Jennifer Goodwin for a few episodes, if not for the rest of the season, depending on her maternity leave. Granted, it's not badass Snow White, but I thought it was actually a really good scene for her. And I thought Jennifer Goodwin did a good job with it. Granted, again, it rang a little bit of, you know, the third act of full house with the, you know, very (laughs) special speech about how great you are and how love is freaking scary and trying to give them life lessons. And then they they all hug. (laughs) And at the same time, I mean, I think snow white was coming from a very truthful place with it. And even though it might be cliche talk, I, I still got where it was coming from. I agree. So let's talk about the goodbye scene now. Um, so initially we think that Ruby and David are going to go, are going to say goodbye, but David has a surprise hook, you know, scratched out snow's name since I guess Hades had sort of, sort of like with Cora had sort of forgotten to not enchant his hook anymore, uh, to write the names on the gravestones. Uh, you would think that, you know, a super powerful God wouldn't forget to do that after releasing his prisoner, but he might've had Zelina on the brain at that point. So, he cook went through with it. You know, they, he did him a solid and scratched out snow's name and wrote David's own. So now snow is going to be the one to say goodbye and her and David passionately kiss goodbye. And the two of them click heels and they head back off to Oz. So uh, did you like this last minute switcheroo overall no, ruling out Jennifer Goodwin's maternity leave and the logistics behind that? Did you like the idea that at the very last minute, David essentially sacrifices himself for his wife? Um, I didn't not like, I, I, you know what? This was like the emotional, you know, character driven thing that I do was like, eh, whatever. Uh, I didn't, I didn't really care so much about this necessarily. Um, I, I think I was just happy that it did transpire the way that it did, that, that it was at hooks hands, so to speak, uh, as opposed to David having gone and bargained with Hades to get things switched. So I, th- I think it was a little bit like I kind of saw it coming. I didn't necessarily know how it was going to happen. Um, and I was just glad it didn't happen the way that I was fearful it would happen with uh, with a little Hades deal thrown in. And at least, and it looks like next week we're going to get a lot of David and James action. You know, Snow White had her episode with, you know, Labor of Love. We have yet to see David stuff outside of the Siege Perilous stuff that happened all the way back with Arthur and I think like episode three of this season. So again, if it gives David and Josh Dallas more stuff to do, I'm all for it. Yeah, again, and it's it's nice that they're investing in, in, in the two actors to bring them both on the screen at the same time. That's I think that's uh, I'm glad they're 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 spending their budget that way. Yeah, double pay for Josh Dallas next week on Once Upon a Time. <laughs> exactly, that's the way it works, right? right? Yeah, that's why Tatiana Maslany makes the most money on TV. No, 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 it's his twin brother, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Yes. I'm I'm kidding, listeners. I'm completely kidding. <laughs> yes, it's Josh Kansas. Will be on next week. <laughs> well played, Mike Bloom. <laughs> so Zelina visits Hades down in the lair, and yeah. she essentially says, "Like, okay, hmm. I give in. 
you know, I'm I'm ready to to make to make things right with you. And he admits, hey, you know, I said I'd take care of this wolf stuff on my own. I kind of did. I liquidated him for you. Uh, I want to show you how selfless I can be. So I'll sort of ask the inverse of the point that I made with Hades at the very beginning of this podcast. Do you think in this scene that Zelina had ulterior motives that she thinks I'm going to cozy up to Hades and then betray him at the last second? I'm I, I, I'm completely not sure. I honestly I don't know. <laughs> where these two stand with each other in terms of uh in terms of pulling one over on each on uh, one another or or not i i honestly don't know i thought there was a lot of um uh legitimacy to hear how like you said how hades kind of talks about um uh well first of all like zelina's talking about that that uh no, no, it was Hades, Hades talking about how like Dorothy now has nobody now that I took away her aunt. You know, Zelina reveals, you know, to, to Hades how she made Dorothy fall asleep. Hades seemed to already know that. Um But but when when uh but Hades, you know, does say that you know, I took Dorothy now has nobody now that I took her away from her aunt, and I know how much you hate that girl. Um we don't necessarily and I have to think back to the diner scene in Grant in uh, Auntie M's. It seems like it seems like Hades is taking away Dorothy's aunt, not so that nobody can wake up Dorothy, but just because then Dorothy will have nobody in her life. It just so happens that uh, the the common belief is that Auntie M is the one that would have had to wake up Dorothy. Because here in this final scene, it seems like Zelina is is revealing to Hades for the first time, "Hey, I you know I put Dorothy under a sleeping spell." Um, so I, I wasn't completely sure if Hades knew that uh, knew that that had happened and knew that uh, Auntie M could potentially wake up Dorothy. It seemed like he had only removed Auntie M from the picture just because it was the only love that Dorothy had in her life. And he was kind of doing this to make an impression on Zelina. I'm going to assume that anything that happened in the past on this show, Hades knows about oh, because he's a, he's come up to various characters and he's he's basically listed out uh, the bullet points of their past before. And so I'd have to assume that, granted, it might have been the recent past, again, depending on where these things plot out on the timeline. But something tells me that Hades must have known some portion of it. Yeah. And so maybe so maybe this was sort of like a two birds with one stone. I can prove I'm helpless. To, help, um, I'm selfless to, to, to Zelina. At the same time, I'll also sort of eradicate this idea of Dorothy, you know, getting woken up by the one person who might be able to do it. Right. But it's interesting is that when we last see Hades and Zelina part ways, Hades like, I'm going to get that wolf, whether or not that's something that's, you know, whether that's part of your game plan, Zelina. But he doesn't really go after Ruby. He doesn't go after the wolf. He goes after Dorothy's aunt. Um, So I'm not really he he, I'm not sure where he kind of changed. courses of action or if there is some kind of if he somehow rationalized that oh if i take away uh dorothy's aunt and therefore dorothy can't be woken up if that will that's how i'm going to get at get at ruby uh, but it does seem that he, his focus shifted a little bit from the last time he was chatting with zelina yeah i mean his his implementation of his things are, are weird to begin with because again you could also make the base argument of like for a guy who's basically all seeing in the underworld why is he not just like barging into every scene the heroes do why are they, why is he letting them plan behind his back and talk to all these people so i think from a logistics the logistical standpoint he might be a tough character to really rationalize yeah 
but I mean, I'll, I'll just say that I personally think that what he did for Zelina was 100% for her and it was 100% genuine, as short-sighted as it may have been, because as you said, he didn't really live up to his first promise and go after the wolf. So you're shipping Zadies. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I went to Zadies. You went to Zadies. Yeah, I'm into Dades again until it turns out that, you know, if Zelina, because the last time we saw Zelina with Belle, he was, she was complaining about how she doesn't want to be with Hades because it means she'll never, you know, she'll never, it reminds her that she'll never have a happy ending. If that means that Zelina has finally just given in and settled, I guess, for Hades, then that would make sense. But it would also make sense if it turns out in a few episodes, you know, she went with Regina's advice and said, okay, I'm going to make, start making good decisions. Let me help out my new friends and betray Hades. Right. Or help Hades start to help himself by being a better person himself. He doesn't have to be bad and I can turn him. I can, I can change him, <laughs> which is, oh, which boy. is always a great start of a relationship. Yeah, that, that's a nice warning sign. <laughs> yeah. Big, big red X over that relationship. I'm not sure so if I, to- I'm not sure if I like who he is now, but I can change him and then we can live happily ever after. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that'll certainly be an ending. I don't know if it's a happy ending or it's an ending that ends in you know a pint of ice cream and a, a Meg Ryan film. Uh, so we go to Oz, and we've we've mentioned this a bunch of times, but Ruby and Snow appear. Ruby is initially hesitant, but she finally kisses Dorothy, and we get our nice little magical wave, uh, meaning the sleeping curse has been broken. And the two of them embrace rather passionately in front of. All those munchkins, uh, which I don't, I don't know how to feel about. But <laughs> again, I'll, I'll agree as sort of forced as it may have been specifically between two characters that we really haven't seen before. I don't know. The cockles of my heart did warm when I watched this scene personally. Did they immediately cool when we were shown that this all came from the imagination of a teenage boy? Yeah, let's talk <laughs> about that. So because we also need to we still don't know too, too much about the role of the author. So the yeah. question is, is this Henry going into Isaac Mendez mode and just automatically writing out the story? Or does, is he like adamantly voluntarily writing this, knowing exactly what's happening or arguably, you know, let's remember what Isaac did. In fact, like writing the course of history by making it happen. Yeah, I think it's that that second option there. It's like I, I I think it's just that it's almost like you know talk about Ouija boards. He's he's kind of spelling out uh, what is happening concurrently with it happening. I mean, remember the role of the author is to uh, record stories and tell them as they happen. Uh, I think he does potentially have a bit of power to be able to create stories that haven't happened. I think where Isaac kind of went off the rails was he was changing reality uh, and kind of changing the past and, and how things were, were, hap- were, were happening. So I don't think that this was necessarily Henry creating this. It was more of like one of his kind of automatic writing moments and was kind of capturing it along as it was happened. Still a little bit creepy. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of that one SNL sketch where Andy Samberg plays like the 16 year old boy who's the executive producer of Game of Thrones where, you know, all he writes about are boobs. Uh, so that's a, I mean, you know, Henry, go through puberty however you like. I know Violet is missing from your life at the moment. So you cope however you can. I will not judge you. That's true. That's true. I forget, forgot about, I forgot about Violet. <laughs> and, and, and good news is that apparently Snow made it safe and sound to Storybrooke and she's uh, hanging out with baby Neil. I, I don't think we mentioned that like the plan was basically for Oz to be a pit stop to, you know, save Dorothy. And then it looks like, I guess Ruby took 
Snow White over to Storybrooke, sort of dropped her off and then went back to Oz to live happily ever after with Dorothy. I guess although Mary Margaret was there when she kissed Dorothy and woke her up. Yeah, uh, because that was when they, yeah. that was their first stop on the tour. The, and I think honestly, that was the thing that irked me the most somehow was like that they really yada yada about how Mary Margaret got back to Storybrooke. That irked me for some reason. I might be the only person out there who it did. But the the fact that, and again, it just kind of lent to that rushed feel I felt through this entire episode. It's like, and Mary Margaret made it back to home with baby Neil and all is happily and all is good. Well, it's, it's, it was surprisingly straightforward. Um, you know, I think we had like jokingly theorized last episode about like, oh, what if they came back to Storybrooke and Arthur and Camelotians had taken it over? <laughs> and I feel like in the Once Upon a Time could spend an entire episode just chronicling Ruby and Snow traveling between these worlds and, and facing, you know, the new environments that they're or the re- environments that they're returning to. Here it was just sort of like you said, yada, yada, yada. She made it back safely. Uh, but, you know, they had to get Mary Margaret off the show. Again, at that last scene with Jennifer Goodwin talking to Ruby was the last scene she did on the season. I'm personally happy with it. I know it's not her shooting an arrow and being badass, but I think it was an emotionally grounded moment for the character, which I, I was happy to see at least. Let's talk about the final scene here uh, where Belle comes in with Zelina's new idea. Gold's still trying to do research, but Belle says, has the ultimatum of like, hey, if I'm asleep, he can't take that baby. And Gold is trying to rationalize this and he chalks it up initially to, oh, you want me to wake you up, which means I have am forced to become the hero and the man that you want to, but no, Belle, there's still some tension between the two of them and Belle says, oh no, you're not waking me up. My father is. Good night. <laughs> yeah, I was a little confused there because it almost seemed like, wait, so you don't re- like, it almost seemed like Gold was admitting that at this, that he 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 can't, that he couldn't be the dark one and also love uh, uh love bell and be and give her true love's kiss um which again two things i didn't think were necessarily mutually exclusive um but yeah he almost did see that like oh you're doing this so i give have to give up my dark oneness and my my evil ways or my my dark magic uh so that i uh can give you true love's kiss i i did i also i thought that he was i thought that she was overreacting in, in in terms of her fear about uh giving birth in 10 minutes and i thought that he was overreacting in terms of why he thought she was doing this. Um, but I was like, well, yeah, if he, if, if gold, if she's not expecting gold to do this, who is she? I was like, Oh, okay. Her dad, but you know, her dad's in the, in Storybrooke. So that, that's a little bit of a problem too. Yeah. I mean, I think he definitely did jump to conclusions because well, let's also remember where their, their relationship left off before all this Gaston stuff happened was he was basically accusing Belle of saying like, Hey, you want me to be a hero and utilize dark light magic so much. It's something I can't do. I guess the question is whether true love's kiss falls into a form of light magic. I'm going to assume yes, because I don't think we've had the cases of somebody kissing someone really evil who was asleep in order to bring them back, uh, back to the, the world of the waking. So I guess I can sort of understand where he's coming from. But again, I think it's, he's very much impacted by the previous comments that he made to his wife before, again, the, the matters of the last episode happen. Belle, I'll agree. I, I think she's sort of walking around like a chicken with her head cut off as if she was about to be prepared for a dish at Auntie's Chicken and Waffles. Uh, I think she's just sort of in crisis mode right now. And I think... <laughs> You know, accident, you know, sending Gaston into the river of lost souls probably pushed her down this path towards insanity of like, well, you know, now I'm doing all these things. I'm not acting like myself. 
I need to do something to calm she, down. Let me calm down really, really slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's slowly turning from Belle to Claire. <laughs> really true. She doesn't want anyone to take her baby. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but again, I, I, I kind of saw this coming from the moment that she had the first conversation with Zelina, and I'm not surprised that it ended the way that it did. It seems like there's always got to be perpetually somebody who's under a sleeping curse somewhere in the Once Upon a Time universe. And I'll also just mention that I believe Emily DeRevan is pregnant as well, and she might be going on maternity leave too. Well, so again, she is she is pregnant. I mean, we she is she is pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like I I don't know when she was going on oh. maternity leave. So maybe the writers were like, oh, let's just t- kill two birds with one stone and send Mary Margaret away and put Belle under a sleeping curse, where all she needs to do is just lay there for the next four episodes. <laughs> so I mean, again, I think it's a convenient way to sort of get her uh, not necessarily out of the picture, but enough on like the sidelines of the picture nearer to the frame where they just need to put her a couple times in frame and that's all she needs to do. And then she can have her baby. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, interesting take on, uh, on, on how we get the, the, the pregnant cast members out of the show. Yeah. Just put them under sleeping curses or send them to faraway worlds. Yes. <laughs> so, I do have a couple of questions and also for our new theory book session, there are a couple of interesting theories as well. I'll, I'll start with the, uh, the leftover questions we have. Rachel asks, now that Ruby is taken, who should Mulan end up with? Are you shipping anyone with Mulan right now, Kurt? Well, there's the blind witch. Um, <laughs> oh, who was, there was, there was somebody that I was actually thinking of, but it completely slipped my mind. Um, oh, yeah, not gonna not gonna get it back. But I, th- I think there is potential out there. I think there is potential out there. Honestly, I think Mulan could could plunder a lot of people down in the in the underworld. You know, if she ends up dying, I think there's a lot of people down there. Some some possible prospects, including this blind witch one that you were alluding to. I know potentially um, potentially Elsa. Yeah, that could be I true. Could, they're I both could, kind of yeah. They're both kind of torn souls. I could totally see it. Yeah. Um. Uh, I don't know. I think, I think, I think like I said, out of any character is Milan, like does travel a lot. Uh, so I think she's got a, you know, plenty of opportunities out there that, 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 that lay ahead for Merida potentially. Oh yeah. I actually think Merida could work really well there. Cause you know, they have a history. They're both very good fighters. It's clear they have that in common. Yeah. I, Mulan could travel back to Dunbrock now. Hopefully she has another bean that Ruby may have used to get them to Oz. And you know, they, they might, tearfully embrace and then uh sword fight to each other for uh for who gets to ask who out something like that yeah that's how it works right <laughs> that's yes mike that's how that's how it works <laughs> before we jump into the theories there is something that's uh a little down that i that i do want to mention um on the day we're recording this which is april 18th a man by the name of scott nimmerfro has passed away uh scott was the writer of a couple of episodes of once upon a time most recently he wrote in season four uh breaking glass which was the first time we saw young lily and young emma and heart of gold which was the bat poo insane episode where we see uh ramen hood and, and gold's adventures in new york and it's revealed that Zelina was masquerading as marion the entire time so two very important episodes for the season and so you know obviously we, we feel very saddened by this but i thought it would just be something to mention since he did contribute very significantly to the show overall and by you mentioning that that reminds me of who i was thinking mulan would be a good match for and that would be lily lily who who we have not seen at all this season 
Uh, yeah, we got we saw Gaston and we didn't see Lily. Come on, well, Lily, come on, Lily's not dead. I mean, Lily. I know, oh. but you know, we we need we you, you know, know I would love to see maybe she maybe she met Snow back in Storybrooke and they found her dad together in one of these lost episodes. More so than whatever happened to Prince Philip's soul. The the actual lingering question is: we left season four, the end of season four, with this big question about you know Maleficent is Lily's mom who's Lily's dad. And, you know, she didn't know at the time because he was in the form of a dragon. This was a huge question at the time. And it actually was, I think when we left season four, that was like one of the biggest things I was looking forward to be exploring in season five. And it was like, it never was a thing. Like there was no even allusion to this as a reference in terms of exploring this as a potential storyline. Um, so this filing that away is a gripe that I've had with season five. Uh, uh, really the only one so far that I can think of it in, in large terms. But I do think that there's potentially a Mulan Lily match. Well, I mean, if Ruby's storyline this season is any indication, the writers are totally game for making someone disappear for a couple seasons and then bringing them back. So I am confident. I do not think this is the last we will see oh. of Lily's unknown father storyline. I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's not. Let's get to a couple of theories here. Uh, the first comes from our good friend, once upon a recapper, uh, always tracking our fact check on this one. And I feel like you're going to have your work cut out for yourself this episode. But once upon a recapper has a theory that since the uh, she believes the, the underworld Emma isn't the savior, Zelina is. What do you think about that, Kurt? And how does that tie into how we left things with Zelina and Hades at the end of this episode? You know, it, it goes, I think, back to your take on, you know, what is, you know, Zelina's intention here and in kind of regrouping with Hades. Is it to find love? Is it to do something and to, to pull one over on him? Um, I, I, I mentioned a little earlier, I do think we've seen a lot of kind of little tick marks in the redemption column for Zelina in this episode. And I don't know if it's like the title of Savior in terms of how Emma was literally you know, uh, there was a character, there was a, uh, a, a, a figure of legend called the savior and Emma took up that mantle. But in, ter- in terms of like a, a, a savior type character in this se- in this season, I could actually see that I could actually potentially see Zel- uh, Zelina, uh, in having some sort of redemption arc here that involves her, um, uh, 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 I'm not sure if it's like in terms of like saving everybody in the underworld, but in terms of having some sort of heroic turn uh, more so than, uh, than potentially Emma. Um, So I'm actually like very intrigued by that as a possible outcome of the season. I mean, I'm going to surprise you here, Kurt, and I'm going to make a Regina comparison. Uh, If she does this, this would remind me of when Regina got rid of uh, the the fury that came at the beginning of this season when, you know, and nobody was confident that Regina could be the savior and save them. This was when in Camelot, she falsely declared herself the savior to protect Emma. So I feel like if Zelina does this, this again would be a moment where this evil character that everyone kind of wrote off ends up saving the day. And again, while it might be trite in that we've seen it happen to a character literally earlier on in this season, I still think it would be a great resolving arc for Zelina as a character. Yeah, I think it's very, uh, I I think there's high potential in that theory. So we have two theories left, and they're both about the interesting convention of Emma's prophetic dream from last episode, which we theorized about. Uh, First is from Jessica Frey. Jessica believes Emma's precognitive dreams comes from the fact that she is the only living Dark One, and this is a power you gain once you've survived being the Dark One. Now, I believe that Outside of, you know, Mr. Gold, who then became the Dark One again, Emma is the only person who has become the Dark One 
and then isn't the Dark One anymore and survived to tell about it. Hook was the Dark One. He's not anymore, but he is technically dead. Does this hold water to you? Do you think that when you're purged of the Dark One spirit, you're sort of gained the power of being able to see into the future through your dreams? Yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. I think that, um, you know, she had the dream about uh, the, the visitation dream from, from Neil. It wasn't exactly prophetic, but it was more of kind of a, like a level two or level three haunting. <laughs> um, uh, so I think, you know, the, well, I would, I would call inception like level five. Okay. If, again, if we're going up in numbers. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, that, that journey that, that Emma has taken, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, going dark and then going light, uh, and still being alive and had kind of, you know, surviving that process. I would, I would not be at all surprised if that, uh, you know, changed somebody in some way and that, and that prophetic dream, uh, could definitely have been, been a result of that. So what do you think then if Hook ends up coming you know, if we presume that Hook gets back up to Storybrooke, do you think he might possess that power as well? If so, I think that's definitely a check in the pro column for Jessica's theory here. Yeah, yeah, I think very possibly. Uh, I, I think the thing I'm less sure of is is um, we've seen we've we've really only seen like the prophetic dream happen once. Um, and upon a time, yeah, upon a time, yeah, long pause there. We've only seen it happen once. Upon a time, um, and I, I, I'm being a little cautious on projecting it out too far into the series. Like, I don't necessarily know if it's going to be a a recurring motif that we see in future episodes or future seasons. Uh, it's hard to predict a trend with one point of data. You need, you know, you know, three. Um, so uh, it, it could very well be that that's something that that happens with Hook as well. Um, I think I think the the bigger question for me is is this uh, kind of prophetic dream uh, going to be a, a central plot device that uh, is used frequently moving forward? Uh, we've only seen it happen once. Um, if it was meant to be uh, have more importance, uh, then I'm then I think we would have maybe seen it happen more than once. Uh, so so in other words, I don't think necessarily that Hook uh, wouldn't have this power if if uh if you know jessica's theory is is indeed correct and i you know it could very well be um it's just that i i think if, it, if this was meant to be something that is a hallmark of the uh the redeemed dark one then i i think we might you think we would have seen it a little bit happen more than once in in this season i think if we see it happen again then we have kind of a, a trail of breadcrumbs uh no, no blind witch at the end of it but rather uh that starts to tell you that we're going to see this happen and recurring uh, uh over and over again in which case we may have that increased likelihood of it happening with hook well those breadcrumbs lead to a breaded chicken cutlet that's available at auntie's chicken and waffles yeah, I, I think that place is going out of business now. I don't know who's going to pick Aww. up the. Yeah, I don't. I, and I was about to go down there the uh, the over the weekend for my wife's birthday. Darn it! Darn it! Darn it! Uh, Evil Roy has a take on this as well, and it's it's a little similar to Jessica, but with a tiny bit of a, a detail change. Uh, he says that the seer in season two could be could see the future, and I think Rumple took her powers in the whole the boy will be your your undoing thing. Uh, and I guess Emma had the power of all the dark ones at one point, which would include that. No, not sure why she would still have it, but I think she may, she must have once uh, had the power to see the future. So like Jessica, he believes that yes, this is come from the fact that she was once the dark one. However, evil Roy believes that unlike it being, you know, something that happens once 
you're purged of the darkness and still live to tell the tale. Instead, it's just something that the Dark One always had as a power. Maybe it was kind of like a, a hanger on once all the dark once the darkness was banished from Emma. This like one the the, the dark one that was the seer just kind of hung out there and said, yeah, "I'm gonna stick around here. I like this better." It's it, it's sort of like a Dark One merit badge almost that certain oh. skills that Dark Ones acquire in their time are sewed onto the proverbial uh, vest that's handed <laughs> it, down from person to person. It's like a retirement gift from being the Dark One. Yeah. Okay. Essentially. So, what what are your thoughts about this, and how it might compare to Jessica's theory? No, they're definitely. I think. I think uh, related. Uh, I think the the addition of kind of that that seer level, uh, you know, kind of you know, I think bolsters uh, uh, Jessica's uh, theory as well. Um, so, I think they they definitely kind of help support each other. Um, I think. I think it's still the the big thing for me is we've seen it happen once, and that we haven't really had any. Um, like like it was interesting emma never questioned uh why or how it happened and to me i think that's the most interesting one of the most more interesting things um so i'm 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 interested in waiting to see if we get another one of these dreams i think if we get a second one of these then the reason behind these dreams is going to potentially be a, a plot arc or something that's explored in future episodes or seasons It'll be interesting too if if we're going along with this this first theory that Once Upon a Recapper presented of Zelina being the savior over Emma. Maybe Emma's prophetic skills will be something that the heroes utilize as a tool, almost that they say, "Okay, Emma, we're going to put you to sleep. You try to determine, you know, see an event and tell us what's going to happen. And maybe it's a really important event involving Hades, and they could say, "Okay, we know what's going to happen. Let's try to, you know, manipulate things so that we can get the advantage." But with, with gifts like this, it's never something people are able to control. So I, I don't think that it's going to be something. For but, now, for now, mm. Emma was able to control her magical abilities over the course of a few seasons. Uh, but yeah, but the the gift of foresight is it, it, it classic trope uh, that people can never control. It's not. It's just, it's something that just kind of hits you. It's it's not something you can rein in, like the blasting people with the the white light, or uh, you know. Um, Gosh, I was about to go all true blood and fairy power here, but I think gosh, I need to pull back at this point. What are you? <laughs> that line is burned in my head from all the times it was shown on the previously on on true blood. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys have any theories out there, we would love to hear from you, especially as we get down to the final few episodes of this season. Uh, we always appreciate your comments here on postshowrecaps.com. Thank you, as always, for leaving those. And while you're here, please subscribe to your Once Upon a Time only feed at postshowrecaps.com slash once iTunes. We are always grateful, whether living or dead, to get ratings and reviews from you guys. And as always, you can reach out to us on social media. I'm at a Mike Bloom type. Kurt is at Kirk Clark. While you're here, check out all the other great stuff that's going on on postshowrecaps.com. Game of Thrones is ramping up, and so is the Road to Game of Thrones, done by Rob Cesarino and Josh Wiggler. Better Call Saul is just finishing up. Seinfeld, they just had their big 100th episode special. I jumped on the, the SNL podcast this past week, and as well as most shows recapped. Uh, and in fact, there's going to be some Orphan Black stuff dropping this week as well for the premiere. So a lot of great stuff going on on Post Show Recaps. No sign of slowing down anytime soon. To finish things off, Kurt, we're going to start slowing down here. Uh, I need a hashtag for everyone who made it this far to the end of the podcast. I, I'd, I'd personally like to go with Slurpee Curse. Yeah, I think, you know, and maybe this will get us an endorsement. Maybe we'll start giving commercials for Slurpees later on. But yeah, in honor of a possible alternative to the sleeping curse, we'll go with hashtag Slurpee Curse. So that's going to do it for this week's Once Upon a Time. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Again, we'd love to hear your thoughts, theories, and questions. So please 
do not be shy. We will see you next week for episode 19 of this season. Uh, And remember, if you're going to scrawl onto a gravestone with a hook, please, please write in cursive. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.